Good morning from Washington, D.C., where the sun has come up and revealed one of the largest spending bills in the history of the United States. The U.S. Senate has passed more than $2 trillion in spending dedicated to helping our nation combat a two-headed enemy of a coronavirus that has stricken thousands and killed hundreds, and the economic downturn resulting from the only means to fight it, staying indoors. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC. Though we're keeping our social distance, we're still committed to providing the same insightful programming that helps you better understand what's happening here in the nation's capital, as well as in capital cities around the world. Today is a particularly timely program focused on the work Congress is doing to respond to this global pandemic. With a vote pending in their House of Representatives, we welcome Congressman George Holding, a Republican who has represented North Carolina since 2013, and Congresswoman Linda Sanchez, a Democrat who has represented Southern California since 2002. Moderating our conversation today will be a former member of House Republican leadership who was a freshman in Congress during the last economic downturn of this size. Peter Roskam represents Illinois from 2007 to 2019, and we're honored to have him here today. Peter, I'll turn the discussion over to you. Paul, thanks very much. And on behalf of FMC and those who are on the call, many of whom are supporters of the organization, I want to thank you for your support, and we look forward to a good discussion. So Linda Sanchez and George Holding, as Paul just mentioned, are both known to me because I had the great privilege of serving on the Ways and Means Committee with them both. And I will tell you, here's my observation of each of these individuals. They each come with a strong worldview and a perspective, and we'll probably hear some of that this morning. But they also both come with a disposition where they can take yes for an answer. And I think that that's what has made um, them each uh, particularly effective legislators and particularly effective at representing their constituencies. So Linda, since you got up so early in California on Pacific time, let's start with you. Can you just give us your observations now in this, um, in, in this season, which is unprecedented in some ways, how does this pandemic look to you and your community? And um, what, what sort of top lines would you have for us to think about this morning? Sure. Well, I want to begin by um, thanking you for having me on the call today. Clearly, we are living in very challenging times, and we are grappling with a situation that is unprecedented in our country's history. Um, but as I think the vote last night in the Senate shows, this is a time where in order to defeat this pandemic, we have to work together and we have to coordinate across party lines, across chambers, and across all level, levels of our government, and even our society in terms of how we um, how we step up to help our neighbors. So I, I know that the headlines are daunting, um, but I think that for every bad headline we see or bad piece of news, there are really a lot of um, underlying stories of Americans helping each other, even while we're trying to maintain this social distancing. So just for you know, perspective, um, yesterday I had a telephone town hall with my constituents. Um, many, understandably, are very frightened. They're anxious. And what they're really looking for, I think, of their elected officials is honesty um, and some courage in helping them kind of navigate this difficult time. Um, thankfully, last night, the Senate passed um, a huge, I don't even want to call it a stimulus package, I call it a stabilization package, but um, it was a bipartisan package of bills um, to try to help us stabilize 
our economy and the families that are struggling. Um, now, recently, and I, you know, feel it's important to say that we kind of are getting this message that pits the health of our family against the health of our economy. And I think that that's the entirely wrong way to view this issue. Um, because if we were to open businesses tomorrow, um, while at the same time exposing a lot of people to loss of life or illness, that's not really a recovery. So we have to start by being honest that the road back to the normal life um as we know, it is not going to be easy and it's going to be a long road, but the choices that we are making now are going to either help that come sooner or they're going to prolong the misery and the agony. So um, I'm really, uh, I think, uh, motivated and inspired by the fact that last night on a 96-0 vote, the Senate passed the stabilization bill, and I think it's sort of a down payment because I think that we are going to need further down the line a phase four and phase five package of bills, but I'm I'm optimistic and I'll end there. Thanks, Linda. George, what do you think? What are you hearing in North Carolina um, as you've been home the past, uh, the past week or so? What kind of feedback are you getting from your constituents and how does this look to you at a macro level? Well, Peter, it's great to be on the phone with you. And Linda, hello. I hope we get together soon. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, I have actually stayed here in Washington. Um, I've done a number of town halls and so forth from here. Um, my wife and children have been traveling extensively, and I've been traveling extensively, so we decided not to um, merge our um, contacts. Um, I look forward to going home, I hope, at the end of the week after we vote on Friday. Um, you know, obviously, you know, my constituents like Linda's are, uh, you know, they're very, very worried. I mean, they see, um, they see the headlines and, you know, everyone at this point, you know, knows someone, um, who's been impacted by this virus and, uh, the headlines are, um, are very daunting and, um, you know, most people have never seen anything like this before. Uh, I will tell you here in Washington that, um, you know, at the end of the day, they came up with a bipartisan package, but the acrimony and the uh, back and forth in the Senate was just, it was kind of painful to watch. Um, I was a Senate staffer. Uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and uh, I, I saw the Senate come together in a time of crisis then um, that I did not see, you know, right off the bat here uh, in the Senate, and it was it was painful to watch. And um, I spent some time in the Capitol. I lived beside the Hart Building here in Washington, so um, you know, ran into a number of cut our friends and on the Senate side, and um, the, the level of acrimony was, was pretty severe. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think we're fortunate that they made it through and they came out with a 96-0 vote. Um, and I certainly anticipate the vote in the House um, will go well without any surprises. We On uh, the Republican side, um, we've had a number of conference calls Um with leadership and with the broader conference, and they've all gone well. Um, even some of our 
uh, some of the folks who you might think throw will throw a spanner into the works. I do not anticipate that happening. Um, I'm sure, Linda, you've been having conference calls with um, your folks and can give us some insight on that. But uh, as Linda said, there will be a phase four and a phase five and maybe even a phase six. Um, and I hope they go smoother than the one this did starting out. Um, you know, when you're looking out for the safety and welfare, I mean, this is what the federal government is meant to do. I mean, this is when we really need to rise to the challenge, rise to our tasks at hand. And I'd like to see that. I would note that I've done a couple of conference calls this week with members of the British Parliament. Um, I've chaired the parliamentary group for a number of years, and it's been interesting uh, to follow their process and do calls um, with them. Uh, obviously, their system is much different from ours, but they have their own divides and so forth. Um, you know, in the United Kingdom, they approach this a little differently to start with, um, where you know they weren't going to block everything down, and they were going to do kind of a. Um, I think the term is like a, a herd immunity, where you know, the more people that get this, you develop the antibodies and so forth. And you know, the, the people just would not would not tolerate that. I mean, the headlines are too frightening, um, and so they switch course and have now moved to a lockdown and are doing. You know, similar to what we're doing, uh, you know, investing a huge percentage of, of GDP uh, into a stabilization project. Um, you know, Percentage-wise, um, I think we're all about the same, like 20 25% of GDP uh, being put into different packages. Um, and this package is large. Um, you know, the $500 billion of uh, added to the Treasury's balance sheet for lending actually leverages to $5 trillion. The, the balance sheet of the Treasury went, I think, from $3 trillion to $5 trillion, and now with this package it will go up to $10 trillion, um, which that's, that's a lot of money there. So I'll leave it, leave it there and have to take questions. Well, let me pick up on something that you, you've both alluded to kind of from different <clears throat> different ends of the question in a way. And that is, you know, Linda said that her constituents are looking for honesty and courage. George, you you talked about the acrimony that you witnessed this week as the Senate was putting its package together. Now, you know, hey, a ninety-six to zero vote is is nothing that that's uh, that's no small achievement. Do you do you both get a sense that this is an opportunity to to lower the partisan wattage? Um, or do you think that we're likely to see it accelerate? What do you think, Linda? Um, that's an interesting question. So, I, as George said, you know, think there was, you know, acrimony and there were differences of opinion. And, uh, but I think ultimately the scope of what we are grappling with um, forced common sense and common common purpose to prevail at the end of the day. And I think. Um, you know, that in this, you know, package of bills, as in most instances, compromise is going to be a necessity. Nobody is going to get 100% of what they want. And my hope is that even though we may have disagreements, 
and differences of opinion and honest, you know, policy differences of opinion, that at the end of the day, the common good of the country will force that compromise to happen. I don't think that it's going to eliminate um, partisanship or differences of opinion, but I think, you know, this just the scope of the pandemic and the economic aftershocks of it is going to be so big that it's going to force us to compromise to get things done quickly. Now, having said that, you know, the legislative process in Washington, D.C. was not set up to be a quick process. And so what we're seeing, you know, with respect to legislation that actually passed was like shockingly fast. Everybody, I know that during this pandemic, days can seem like weeks and weeks can seem like months, but it's been shockingly fast, um, the amount of time to get large bills that are, you know, thousands of pages written, agreed to, and passed, it's been shockingly fast. So my hope is that uh, because the scope of the need will be so great that we will compromise, and even though we will have bickering and differences, that, that, that we will come together ultimately and legislate on behalf of the American people. George, what do you think? Well, I'm very prayerful for the outcome that um, Linda sees in um, the elephant in the room of course is um, we're on the cusp of an election and um, you know that that is out there um, you know orbiting you know this this terrible situation that we're in this orbiting the legislative process um, that we have to go through to, to try to react and try to be proactive uh, in addressing the problems that we have and you know, with that election out there and the stakes in that election and the, you know, the partisan heat around that election, uh, that's just not going to go away. And I think that is going to continue to inject um, some pretty hard partisanship you know, into the process here. But, you know, the Senate did overcome it. And, um, you know, tomorrow when we have the vote in the House, um, you know, I, I intend to be there and I'm We'll have some remarks, you know, short remarks, and they will be, you know, very positive and upbeat and congratulatory of the process. Um, and I hope other remarks are that way. Um, you know, as we get into this bill, there are going to be some things that folks don't like on either side. And you know, like we've seen in, in legislation in the past, sometimes some things can be taken out of context there and all of a sudden become a rallying cry. And I am worried that um, some of those things will um, further poison the process as we work on a phase four and a phase five. So mm. um, time for some real real leadership. And we do have real leaders on, on both sides. Um, and with depth of experience and depth of relationships and um, certainly be looking to them to try to tone down the partisanship so we can act um, in a necessarily quick way. You know, John Boehner, former speaker, used to say that Washington is the slowest place until it's the fastest place. And that's the sense that I have uh, watching, just watching the process unfold. Because to Linda's point, that it, it feels like a hot knife through butter, which, you know, in some ways is, is good. It shows that an institution is able to to get things done and to uh, and, and and to work clearly. So, 
let's let me let me ask you a question that sort of takes us out a little bit in time in terms of getting things done and that is is there a can you give us a sense of where the discussion is and george i'll come to you first where is this discussion about congress voting remotely um number one how does it strike you personally and what do you think um what do you think the dynamics would be uh does it make sense is it foolish uh is the technology here that can that can handle it how does it how does it strike you there's my understanding from conversations that you know we require a vote to to do that and even if we did that um the technology you know, is not there that they feel secure with um and as we all know um you know, the legislative process is a face-to-face process. Um, there's a lot more that gets done in small conversations you know, in and around the Capitol um, than actually gets done on debate on the House floor. Um, so I'm, I'm not in favor of, you know, remote voting. Um, the proposal that's out there uh, that may actually be voted on on Thursday is to allow proxy voting. Um, the speaker pointed out mm. that proxy voting is allowed um, in some committees, so there's precedent for it. And, um, you know, that may be a way to kind of get around the um, the the failures in technology or so forth where you can have a certain number of members here. You can uh, lower the number um by rule change for a quorum, and then have members vote other members by proxy. So, I think that may be where we're heading in the immediate future, um, not the remote vote. Linda, what do you think? Do you want to be voting on your iPhone uh, either in this Congress, or do you see something like that happening in a future Congress? Um, so that's an interesting question. Now, I, I want to just lay the background that uh, the Senate still makes decisions by recording verbal yeas and nays on a tally sheet. So the idea of going to voting via your um, cell phone, I think, is a long way off. Uh, there are a number of challenges. Um, number one is that um, in the House and in the Senate, there are some members that are let's just say technology challenge. So even if we were able to pass rule changes for remote voting, set up an encrypted system that would protect our votes, um, it might not be the easiest thing for um, for members to be able to vote remotely because of the technological understanding they would need to have first. Um, and there are very good reasons for not having remote voting. As George said, you know, conversations on the floor, you know, uh, sometimes when I'm sort of on the fence about a piece of legislation, I may go to the um, the chairman of that committee and ask for pros and cons, you know, on the floor as we're voting to sort of help tip the scale either way. Um, there are a lot of really good reasons for not having remote voting. Now, being a member from California, however, I will say <laughs> that um, the prospect of having to fly uh, six hours on an airplane and recycle there with, you know, travelers from who knows where, that doesn't appeal to me. Um, and I think it's sort of insane that we would say we want to convene a body of 435 people on the same in the same building where you can't maintain a six-foot distance from each other 
to touch the same voting machines and doorknobs and railings, mm-hmm. you know, that your colleagues do, that doesn't appeal to me. I have a 10-year-old son. I'd like to be around for him for a long time. Um, not to mention that members of the House and Senate also, many are older and fall into those most at risk. So I can see the pros and cons of wanting to establish some kind of system where you do not have to have all of those people confined in the same building at the same time voting. So the idea of proxy voting, I think, um, does help alleviate some of those stressors. Um, But, you know, this is a pandemic. It's unlike anything we've seen. But who's to say that it's the worst of what we will see in the future? So I think we have Hmm. to start thinking prospectively about how in cases of, like, real emergencies, let's say a wartime or an even worse pandemic, how could we convene the congressional body, the legislative body, to vote um, so that the government isn't, you know, frozen because we we can't convene a body to vote? Yeah, that's a really good point in that we've got to take advantage of this as a country right now to, to contemplate a worse scenario and um, to run the traps. And the proxy voting is interesting. I mean, in, in the decades past, it was very controversial co- proxy voting because it was perceived as a manipulation by, on the part of committee chairmen who, you know, had a stack of proxies and was able to really manipulate a process. And um, that, that fell into disfavor. But now, you know, it, it could come back. And there, I would imagine that there would be a level of accountability and transparency and that proxies would be published or online and so forth and less subject to manipulation. But it's still, um, it, it, it's still an interesting thing. Let's turn to this balance now that you both articulated a minute ago, and it's the balance between public health and economic health. And this sort of Hobson's choice, you know, this, this difficult situation that we're in right now, how do, how do these both resonate with you as members who are trying to, to make priority decisions about two strong competing interests, physical health and economic health? Linda, how do you, how do you balance those? Sure. Well, I think the first thing is that it's important to listen to public health experts about the pandemic um, because they all along have said that social distancing will stop or slow the spread of coronavirus. And um, some governors acted swiftly to implement um, uh, those recommendations. Um, and we are, you know, hopefully seeing the curve bend on that. Um, on this, I mean, you know, but on the other hand, I will say, yet in yesterday's town hall, I heard from a small business owner who's had to shutter his doors and lay people off um, because he's not deemed essential. And those stories are very real; they're very heavy, and all of our districts are experiencing them. Um, but I think that, you know, even Wall Street investors uh, recognize because I've been watching the news and they've been interviewing folks that the only thing worse than sort of a limping economy, even a crawling economy, is a raging pandemic that will overwhelm our healthcare system, cause widespread deaths, and permanently damage our workforce because it will permanently damage our economy. Uh, What we're experiencing now, I think we can rebound from uh, with the right steps. But if you have just a raging pandemic where you have 
you know, hundreds and thousands, if not millions of deaths and illnesses and a, a healthcare system that can't, um, can't cope with that, I think you will do permanent damage to the economy. So I think it's really important to listen to the healthcare experts on what we should be doing to contain the pandemic. And I'm going to recommend to folks, there are two really great websites that I've looked at. Uh, well, one is an article called Coronavirus, Why You Must Act Now by Thomas uh, Pueyo. And the other is covidactnow.org, which shows the number of cases that we are anticipating, um, the number of hospital beds we currently have available to deal with the pandemic, and what different steps we'll do to bend that curve, whether it's, um, you know, business as usual, uh, very limited social um, distancing, all the way to Wuhan-style shelter-in-place uh, lockdown. And, and you, can, you can see on these charts exactly what will happen um, to the number of cases and um, at what point it will overwhelm the capacity that our hospitals currently have. So I would recommend that folks look at that article um, and to look at that website, you can click it on state by state to see in each state um, when, um, at what point, um, given various steps of action, hospitals will be over. But I think the only thing, again, worse than even a, an economy that has slowed to crawl is if you do permanent damage to the economy by doing permanent damage to the workforce. And I'll ask FMC staff to send the, the article and the link out uh, to the call participants at the at the uh, sometime this morning. Um, George, how do you balance these two strong competing interests that um, at times seem to be in real conflict? Well, I think Linda has it exactly right in that we need to um, rely on our healthcare experts out there and, and people who specialize in this and take their advice. Uh, a problem we have is the the data sets that we're looking at. I mean, we have competing data sets, and they're competing uh, experts out there. Um, Oxford University published a study, I think, on Monday. It was covered in the Financial Times on Monday or Tuesday, I believe, and that article is readily available. And uh, you know, that study pointed out from the limited data sets that they have and they model. Um, that a very large percentage, up to half of the residents of the United Kingdom, have been infected. Um, and if you use that data set, then the mortality rates are are much lower um, because you know they're they're extrapolating the mortality rates from a much larger infected population. Um, now there are other uh, studies that, you know, don't, they use a different um, analysis of the data sets that we have. So, you know, in the coming days and weeks, as we do more testing and we garner more data, um, hopefully the experts will converge on a more uniform opinion. But, you know, we need to listen to them. And, you know, we as politicians um, need to absolutely prepare for the worst case scenario and, you know, just all of us as human beings need to pray for the best scenario. Um, but we certainly need more data uh, to inform our experts so they can inform us. 
Do you have a sense, George, on the international side of things? You mentioned um, what you're observing in, in the UK. We've got folks on the call from, from all over the world who represent interests all over the world, Asia, Europe, and so forth. Um, any any um, flashpoints of good examples or things that we should be um, avoiding that are uh, kind of beyond the obvious? I, I tell you, you know, every country is different. Um, uh, you know, India, India yesterday or the day before yesterday you know, issued a very stern order to to lock down. You know, one point one and a half billion people, one point three billion people. Um, and Peter, I know you've been to India. You know, I've been mm-hmm. a number of times, and I don't see how you do it in that country. Uh, I mean, I've toured the. The slums there, and, and just the just the cities there. Um, even if you, even if everybody locked down and stayed where where they live, uh, they're still going to be in really close proximity. Um, so, uh, you know, every country has to address it in the best way that they can. Um, it is you see different forms of government, and yeah, you know, obviously. There are a lot of forms of government out there that are more nimble than our government and our legislative process. Um, and I haven't seen any, any, you know, we don't know, we don't know the outcome, um, of what anyone is doing. So we don't know if there are any best practices out there. But, um, um, you know, social distancing, you know, hopefully will work. Linda, as you're evaluating now the Senate package, and I know it's it's you know it's massive, a thousand plus pages, and it's moving very very quickly. What are some of the top lines that that you're looking at in terms of your evaluation? And let me let me just ask one other kind of follow up in advance of your response, and that is, let's assume for the sake of argument that that we stabilize well and that we're in a, you know, four months from now, the country is in a different course and, and, and the, we've turned the corner on this. What do you think the elements of this stimulus or as you described it, a stabilization package, what, what do you think in the stabilization package will be the elements that are the most successful and do the most good? Well, there are a lot of good things in this bill. It's not a perfect bill, but there are a lot of great things. I think one of the biggest is um, the unemployment insurance um, payments. So folks can access those via their state. The bill waives the wait time. It's usually a week. Um, and in addition, the the Senate bill provides additional pandemic unemployment benefits of $600 per week. And the important thing about the unemployment benefits are that those are ongoing paychecks. So it's not just a one-time payment, although there are also one-time payments included in the package. So um, the one-time payments uh, are meant to help people um, who are struggling, but the unemployment, uh, and those would go to everybody, um, but the unemployment benefits are the quickest way to help those who have dropped off payrolls. And we just saw record number of unemployment claims filed, 3.28 million. Um, so we know that 
um, there are a lot of people who are dropping off of payrolls. And if you, if folks drop off of a payroll, um, past history shows that it's very difficult to get those people back into the workforce once they drop off a payroll completely, which is why some of the elements of the bill, which would um, give uh, credits and grants to small business owners who maintain people on payroll, um, give them the breathing room to keep people on payroll um, and get some assistance for doing that. I think the provisions that help small businesses are really important as well. Um, again, uh, talking to my, you know, small business um, owners in the district, um, they are asking, what can I do? I'm not going to be able to make rent, et cetera. There's $10 billion for SBA emergency grants, up to $10,000 to provide relief for small businesses' operating costs. Um, and there's an additional $17 billion for SBA to cover six months of payments for small businesses who have existing SBA loans. Um, and those are going to be really important to trying to keep small business uh, small businesses afloat. Um, it, those two provisions, I think, the I, I should say the small business provisions in the bill and the unemployment provisions, direct cash assistance, are going to really help stabilize families and small businesses who are necessarily going to be the hardest hit. And, you know, there are, you know, there is some specific help for certain industries, um, including healthcare industries so that they can get the protective gear that they need and they can get, um, they can expand hospital space um, to accommodate the big surge in patients that they're going to be expecting. Uh, those, to me, top line are the most important parts of this bill. George, how about it? What do you think um, will be are, are, are the, the anchors of a recovery? Well, the, this bill, um, I think the, the cornerstone of it, the overarching theme of it, is to hold the economy intact, kind of, kind of put a placeholder and say, all right, let's try to keep all these small businesses together, um, and you know, for those who do go on unemployment rolls, let's replace their income uh, because they can't be out looking for work if the country is shut down. Um, they're out of work for no fault of their own. Uh, by bumping uh, everyone's unemployment check six hundred dollars, uh, you know that amount um, was kind of the ab- nationwide average um, to try to replace everyone's. Uh, income in some places they're going to actually get more um, on the unemployment rolls than maybe they were making and certainly in some places they're going to get less Um, you know the thought was you know there are 50 different unemployment so every state runs their own unemployment system there would be no way to easily um, try to vary those payments from state to state Um, you know a lot of these unemployment systems are are antiquated, and they certainly, uh, you know, just the, the computer systems and programs are antiquated and certainly not uh, prepared for the capacity um, that we're seeing now. And then on the small business side, you know, these loans are, you know, all geared to keep the small business together. Um, small business gets a, you know, a 7A SBA loan up to $10 million, and if you know, they keep 
everyone on their payroll or most of the people on their payroll and use the funds to pay rent and electricity, uh, to keep the light zone, to be ready to open back up uh, when the virus has abated, uh, those loans will become grants. And also, you know, the Small Business Administration, apparently their website has crashed several times already. Um, so the Treasury, and part of this bill, and the Treasury wanted to do this, is all all FDIC financial institutions now have been delegated the authority to make small business loans um, backed by the SBA with uh, low capital requirements uh, from the banks. So, you know, there are 5,000 FDIC uh, banks in the United States, and all of them now can make SBA loans. Um, so, you know, regardless of who you were doing business with as a small uh, business owner, which bank you had, uh, you can go to your bank and get an SBA loan. And I believe we, in a conference call with the Treasury Secretary last night, uh, he said that he would also uh, expand that to state chartered banks uh, regulated under FinTech. Um, and I think that's a that's a, a very good thing because um, the SBA is not set up to do this. Uh, one member uh, brought up the point that, hey, in his part of the state, there are only eight SBA employees, and that when we get hit by a hurricane and they do these programs, they would surge the SBA with folks from around the country uh, hmm. to make you know, emergency SBA loans. But obviously you can't do that because of this impacts the entire country. So enlisting all the financial institutions out there, and they get paid for this. I mean, there's a 5% origination fee um, for the banks. So, you know, they'll want to be helpful and they'll want to you know, work through this process. And I think that's a good thing. What do you think, Linda? Do you think that um, one of the questions that one of our call, or person on the call had was, was essentially, could you contemplate a time when we sort of phase in um, uh, a level of ec economic activity? So, for example, a restaurant where um, there's been special training and protocols that are put in place, the tables are separated and so forth. Do you think that that's the way this is going to go? And, I, and, I, and I'm just asking you to kind of guess and speculate. Or do you think instead of that sort of phasing in and a slow roll of activity, do you think it's going to be a situation where we kind of get an all clear from the healthcare professionals? Just what, what's your instinct tell you? Um, my instinct tells me that it probably will not be a slow roll, um, that I think once we are, you know, through the surge and once, you know, people sheltering in place has um, brought the numbers down. I mean, the real critical aspect of a pandemic is that you hit a, a crisis point at which the number of people who need care swamps what is available. And so I think that if we can tamp that down um, so that there aren't, you know, there isn't this widespread raging, raging pandemic, um, and that the availability of, of care always stays above what the need is um, over time, I think that um, we will get an all clear. And that could come sooner if we, if they, you know, any of the um, vaccines that they are currently trying to develop 
um, are proved to be effective. I mean, anything could trigger that. So I don't think that it will be a case that we will scale back up the way that we scaled down because most jurisdictions started with a, okay, no gatherings of over a thousand people and then they reduced it to, you know, under 250 and even that wasn't effective. So then it became under 50 and then it became under 10 and then it just became sheltering in place. I don't think that we're going to scale back the economy up the way that we that we started to tamp tamp down on the on the um, on the numbers of people interacting with each other. I think these protocols are going to need to be in place for a long time, and I think at a certain point the healthcare community will signal to us that it's it's manageable to once again start start the economy back up. Well, we know that you both have big responsibilities today in terms of processing the Senate bill. So I'd just like to invite you both, starting with you, George, to give a final word um, this morning to, you've got several former members who are on, you've got several company representatives, you've got international representatives of countries, um, embassies who are here in the U.S. or large international interests, and really a wide spectrum of folks who are on the call. So. What, what, George, what last word would you have for this group this morning? Well, the American people need to have confidence in their government and their institutions. Um, and so for all those influencers out there, um, I, I would just call upon you to um, you know, say that government is working. Um, and you know, look at this package. You know, Linda went through a lot of the, the parts of this package that are really good and should inspire confidence in the American people that the government, you know, when called upon in a crisis like this, can can really act and can really put you know a lot of balance sheet um, behind supporting people and trying to keep your lives intact while we deal with this virus. So, um, you know, people are afraid. Um, people are frightened for their own lives, for their families. And for their livelihood, and um, there's a lot to take hope from in this package, and I think getting that message out is important. Um, and that that would be my final thought. Linda, last word. Um, I just think that uh, right now, as we consider legislative proposals, the real um, the top priority is to get this done quickly because we need this stabilization done quickly. Um, so I think here expediency trumps um, the need to be super precise with legislation. We need to put guardrails on legislation, but I think the haggling over, you know, real in the weeds specificity has to be sac- sacrificed at this point for expediency. I think the American public needs this help. And I think that, you know, we need to make it happen as quickly as possible. Um, so, for example, the direct payments to folks, um, if when they file their, their returns next year, you know, they made more income than they were eligible, um, then we'll deal with that at that time. But I think right now we need to get money into the pockets of families that are struggling. So um, expediency is kind of the order of the day. Uh, legislatively from from for right now at least um, but we we really are working as quickly as we can and 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 again I know that 
um, hours can, can feel like days and, and days can feel like weeks. But, but given the way that our legislative system is set up, which is very slow, I, I think in the best of times, legislation moves at a glacial pace. I think that we really are um, are stepping up and, and, and trying to inspire that confidence that George said is so needed right now. Well, on behalf of the former members of Congress Association, we're really grateful for you both for two things. Number one, you've been incredibly generous with your time. And number two, you demonstrate an intellectual prowess and a capacity to articulate things that really encourages us. And your disposition and your demeanor, um, I think, are, are a great example of clarity in a time of incredible turmoil and tenacity and uh, forthrightness. So um, the other thing I want you to do is look at your watches right now because we're right on time. So if we call <laughs> you in the future for a call, you'll, we'll get you in and we'll get you out. So um, that's no, thanks that's very no much. Thanks, that's, that's thanks to your, your adeptness as a moderator. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. All right. God be with you. Have a great day, guys. Bye-bye. Be Bye, well. Bye, Bye, Linda. Thank you. Bye, George.